We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. Hi, everyone. Carla, alcoholic, and my sobriety date is October 13th, 1991. Thank you to listeners. Excited and grateful to be able to participate in my sobriety and share my story. Three things that I was taught that keep me in good standings in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous is having a sobriety date, a home group, and a sponsor. So I've already shared I have a sobriety date, October 13th, 1991. I have a home group. It's the Marina Pacifica 7 a.m. attitude adjustment meeting, and we meet every day in Long Beach at 7 a.m. in the corner of Ocean and Granada. You're welcome to join us in person anytime. And my sponsor is Polly P. She uh, moved to Florida, gosh, dozens of years ago now. So I also have an in-town sponsor. So Polly's been my sponsor for well over 20 years, and I just couldn't uh, disconnect those ties from her because she lives so far away. It's harder to get that time alone or one-on-one with her. I have someone in town, Julie B., that is my in-town person, and I can be able to connect with her on a regular basis and stay current. So those are the three things that keep me in good standings in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd love to share with you my experience, strength, and hope, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. So a little bit about what it was like. I grew up in Southern California, a very loving home, lots of love. I'm the youngest of four. I have a twin sister, but I was born second, so I get to claim the youngest in that family, and I also get to claim the good twin. <laughs> the, let's see, so I grew up here in Southern California, and what was not unique, but probably a lot of people share this experience I had parent who was an alcoholic. So I grew up in a dysfunctional family because of the alcoholism that was present. But growing up, I didn't identify that anyone in the house had drinking problems. So, um, my mom was the alcoholic and um, she ended up getting sober um, and was sober for 21 years before she passed. The purpose I, I want to bring up about that household was my mom was the um, just the crazy one. You know, so I didn't really identify that she had a drinking problem. If I think back of what it was like in the house growing up, this mom was just unavailable and did crazy stuff. Crazy stuff like slurring words or falling down or a complete embarrassment. And But I really didn't put the two and two together that she had beverages in her hand her uh, addiction changed over the years to more of a, a, a pill addiction so she kind of stopped drinking I think in later years and was doing a lot of more prescription medications which just manifested a lot like alcoholism anyways falling down slurring so growing up in this home 
lots of love though, even though dysfunction, I knew I was loved and cherished and I was actually extremely spoiled, got everything I wanted. These facts didn't make me an alcoholic in my opinion. In my opinion, I learned that alcohol was an, uh, a solution to many situations. Living in that household also, um, it was the party house. Like my parents always had the parties. So they would have like their friends over. I remember from an early age, they had all their friends, you know, would socialize, gather there. And us kids were sent to their room and they would tell us to go to bed and then they would have these wonderful parties. And I would sneak out of my room at night. I remember, I can't remember how old I was, but just at an early age, I remember going to the door and listening, you know, to what was going on behind the door or going outside and sitting under the window and listening to the party going on inside. And I remember thinking, that's what I want to do when I grow up. I want to have parties. I want to have fun. I want to do what they're doing. So drinking was a big part of the household lifestyle there was lots of alcohol available i remember specifically where the alcohol was kept as a young person i was there was always three major stashes and i would frequent them often there was the fancy alcohol in the formal living room and um there were bottles that were probably just all full of dust and hardly anyone ever went into. And then there was this cabinet in the kitchen that had these gorgeous bottles. And there were, it was a glass cabinet where you would probably see like a China hutch where you'd have champagne flutes and, and whiskey tumblers and these gorgeous bottles. And then their third location, which was my favorite, was out near we had a pool, a swimming pool, and a swimming pool room. And out in that room was cabinets. And in the bottom cabinets, I could see the clear as day, even today, these large half-gallons bottles of booze. And those were easily to obtain, and no one ever asked um, if anything went missing. So that's where I used to steal the booze really didn't have to steal the booze because alcohol was was kind of allowed. I mean, I don't remember anyone handing me a drink as a child, but I definitely remember that I could just, as a young uh, a teen, I want to say, sit down and have a drink. And I can remember the insanity of that, you know, a teenager just sitting down at the table and having a drink. Or on my 16th birthday, my mom <laughs> planning the 16th birthday for the twins, and I use air quotes, the twins. And my mom gave us a, a case of wine to celebrate our birthday. And um, it was Thunderbird wine, a case of Thunderbird wine for a bunch of 16-year-olds. Oh, that was crazy. So, yeah, so alcohol was free and easy to get and consume. And, um, but yet I still would go out and sneak a bottle, one of those big bottles from the pool house, and take it out to my friends and drink with my friends. Those were the good memories of drinking as a teen. And then 
the not so good memories are when drinking to cover feelings. I learned to do that also at a young age. I remember my mom as the 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 one with the problems, the crazy woman, crazy mom. So she was going in and out of hospitals often, and lots of them were psych units under the guise of of being um, having a nervous breakdown or having nerve problems or emotional problems. And and I think if I had to analyze, it was probably then in those years that they started giving her more and more drugs to take and her addiction to pain medications and all the other medications that she's given probably started and solidified at those places. So, but how it affected me was my mom was going into these hospital places. I remember I was really young when this one pivotal moment occurred. My grandmother, my dad's mom came to take care of my twin sister and I, and we were probably in middle, no, we were in, we were probably in elementary school, very young. I want to say eight years old. Grandma came to stay because mom was in another hospital. And she said to my twin sister, Darla, Darla and Carla, she says, you're the reason your mom is the way she is. She said, if, if I had, you girls to take care of if you were my daughters uh, um, uh, she would be in the same situation the psych unit so that's how I interpret it I don't know exact words but I interpreted my mom was sick because of me I was a problem so then fast forward to high school I think freshman year of high school mom's in another psychiatric unit and I remember going to school and feeling I, that I wanted to find something, anything to not feel, to just escape, to uh, medicate, to numb out from my feelings. And I remember specifically going to school and looking for something to take. And I wasn't, didn't ever ask. I was the kind of kid that I just wanted to hang out with everyone and the party kids and have a good time and people would hand me stuff and I would just take it. I would never even ask what is this and what will it do? I just took it. And I remember that day looking for somebody that had something I could just ingest so I could stop feeling because it was just too painful. And then that just perpetuated the, the cycle of looking for something to take to not feel. Yeah. Um, so a little bit more about my childhood. At six, 15, I met a boy, first boy I dated at 16. He asked me to marry him. He was 21. And at 17, I married him. <laughs> he was 21. I remember honestly thinking to myself, this is wonderful. He's He can buy alcohol. He's an adult and he can you know, legally buy alcohol. Because I was one of those kids, like most of us probably that were teenagers drinking. We had to always find someone to buy our booze. And I have stood outside of liquor stores and asked people as they walked in that looked old, 
old enough to buy my booze. So here I am. I'm thinking this is fabulous. I'm going to leave home because really I wanted to get out of the house. It was getting so crazy. And I meet this boy who wants to marry me and I get to get out of the house. Plus he's 21 and we can now drink. And um, unfortunately the signs, I didn't pay attention to the signs and one instance I thought now looking back was hilarious that we were on our after our wedding at the reception where you are toasting with your you know champagne to the bride and groom and the toast was done and I took my sip of my champagne and set the glass down and my husband poured my champagne out and so that set up this whole marriage of him trying to control my drinking so this great plan that I had that I married this man that was going to, because he's 21, he can buy alcohol, that we were going to have this party life that was out of the question, absolutely out of the question. We ended up moving immediately after we were married to Georgia. So here I am, 17-year-old, living in Georgia, and I had grown up in this very comfortable middle class, upper middle class. I already mentioned the swimming pool, pool house. So we had everything we wanted. You know, I was given everything that I ever desired. Uh, spoiled rotten. Now I left that environment to move to Georgia. And I'm living in a trailer park in Georgia. And I'm really poor. My husband uh, was working some odd jobs, construction, didn't make much money. He's trying to control my drinking. It was quite depressing. I started getting, you know, a little work. I found an office job. Four months after we moved to Georgia, I turned 18. And the legal drinking age in Georgia at the time was 18. So, whew, now I can buy my own alcohol. I don't need this guy that I married. And I, I got an office job. And I remember the ladies in the office were all going out after work to happy hour i didn't know what happy hour was and i was like oh they invited me so i'm like yeah okay so we go to the bar and i find out about happy hour and i find out you know i can drink with these ladies and it was all seemed very socially acceptable but the problem was i had to hide it from the husband because he didn't like my drinking so it was a bit of a, you know, reverse roles, like a father-daughter type of, makes me sick to my stomach to say that out loud, but it was that type of relationship where I am, you know, the child always sneaking around trying to hide it from him because he's the parent role that's just perpetuated through our marriage. So we were in Georgia three years and I convinced him that the problem was Georgia. I needed to leave Georgia. I need to come back to Southern California where I grew up and everything would be better. So this set up what I, the first of what is referred to often in an alcoholic anonymous as a geographic. So I, I moved back to California and, but the problem was everywhere I went, I took myself with me. We're back in California, and um, six months later, my parents moved to Tennessee, to Nashville, Tennessee, and slowly, very, uh, not slowly, quickly, my siblings 
also moved. So I was about 20, 22 at that age, I think, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 years old um, when we moved back to California and now my family is all moving to Nashville. And I'm here alone with this husband. So I get this great idea. The problem is, not the problem, the solution is to have a baby. Then I will settle down and be a good wife and stay at home. Um, because I, you know, learning what I learned in, in, in Georgia about the bars, I, I fell in love with the bar scene and going out to bars and drinking at bars. So I'm back in California and I want to avoid this behavior I've set up of going to bars and drinking and, and doing all of those crazy things. I don't know about you, the listener, of female alcoholics usually um, behave um, unladylike when you're drinking. And for me, that it was from the get-go. I never behaved like a lady. Once I get alcohol in me, I'm barely, rarely, I should say, rarely slightly intoxicated. I overshoot the mark all the time. And I'm always finding myself in situations that I really don't want to be in with people that I really don't intend to be in those situations with. So a lot of incomprehensible demoralization was happening early on in Georgia. So leaving Georgia, thinking that was the solution, coming back to California, then creating my next solution was having a baby was going to solve it, settle me down, I'll become a mom. So we had our first son, Stephen, in 87. And I remember not drinking through the whole pregnancy, not doing anything. You know, I I had experimented a few times with some speed, cocaine, methamphetamines, loved them. So uh, I loved them so much, primarily because the ability to drink more. So alcohol is definitely my main love, but I never found the opportunities or, or neither did I have money to do any drugs. I never found the right people. I was just... I don't know. I call myself naive. I never connected the dots to how to find people that had drugs. So I, my drug story is very, very little. I had that a couple of minor experiences with cocaine and speed and with methamphetamines and loved them, but didn't ever stumble around, around the right people that could get them in the future and never had the money for it. So drugs are very like minimal in my experience other than high school doing, you know, whatever anyone put in front of me. And then a little bit after high school, but drinking was my um, definite that I just, so I'll move on from there. So here I am having this baby decided no more drugs, little marijuana that I tried to smoke before I got pregnant. I decided no more marijuana, no alcohol. So I stayed completely sober through the whole pregnancy and had my son. And I remember the day, um, this day, uh, like one or two days after delivering him or coming home from delivering him at the hospital and them saying, I was having the problem a lot of 
new moms have um, with insomnia. A lot of anxiety. I'm 23 years old and I have a lot of anxiety about being a new mom. No family around me. And couldn't sleep. So the doctor, we called the doctor and the doctor said, (laughs) again, another memory that's like so vivid in my mind. Sitting there on the phone listening to the doctor. The husband's sitting there listening with me and he says, you know, why don't you have a glass of wine that will help you unwind. You know, I was also trying to nurse, not being very successful with nursing. So he said that will also help that. And um, maybe, you know, your husband can keep the baby, give him a bottle through the night and let you sleep. So just have a, you know, a glass or two of wine. And I'll... I remember this like it was yesterday, picking up that glass, putting it to my lips and drinking that wine and feeling it go rush through my body. And I I could just breathe. I could just relax. And of course, I didn't have just one glass. I ingested as much as the husband would allow. And then I relaxed. And that just, the obsession was immediately on again. You know, the whole, like, my determination to be a good mom, to be uh, sober. I don't know what sober was at the time, but I wasn't going to be a drinker. I wasn't going to be a party girl anymore. I have this baby. I'm going to stay home and take care of him and be a good mom. So the obsession was on, but still I had a desire to be home and be a good mom. Then a couple years later, so I'm managing. I'm trying to control my drinking. That I'm staying at home for two years with the baby. And at two years old, um, he's old enough to go to daycare, so I get a job. So I find this dream job with an airline. My father worked for an airline all my life since before I was born, right? So I'm, I, I get this opportunity to work for an airline and just the dream come true. So I go work for this airline. And I find that, wow, drinking is so acceptable in that group of people. We were going here and there and drinking in between, drinking and and showing up for work, mostly not sober the next day, uh, having these horrible outings, I'm using air quotes, with colleagues would go out after work to the bar, end up in places that I didn't want to be. with colleagues and then the next day trying to play it off like it's all cool you know and my world just kept getting smaller and smaller at that time because you know when you're embarrassing yourself so horribly in front of your friends that are your colleagues so I'm changing shifts at work so I don't have to run into these people or I'm, I'm no longer calling them or asking them to hang out with me to go drinking with me because I'm so embarrassed by my behavior. Yeah. So I, uh, my world is getting smaller because my friends list is getting shorter and shorter. And then I'm, I have this husband and I, I, the husband, he was extremely, uh, controlling manipulating and abusive he he was the kind of person that wouldn't allow me to spend money i could only um, spend what he would uh, give me or or spend it on what he would approve of so there was that kind of stuff that going on in that marriage where he he controlled a lot of my behaviors by his the way he treated me is 
Yeah, he didn't like this. Then he would berate me endlessly about doing whatever it was I was trying to do. Berate me endlessly about my uh, intelligence. If I was smarter, I could get a better job, make more money, and I could buy what I wanted. But that has nothing to do with my alcoholism. I just want to set the stage that that was this marriage that I was in. And for a long time, that gave me a lot of ammunition to drink the way I wanted to and party the way I wanted to and behave the way I wanted to. Because, you see, if you were married to him, you would drink and behave the way I did. That was my excuse. If you were married to this man, you would behave this way too. And I had gone to different therapists. I remember I saw a therapist because I was always searching for help. I thought I was crazy. Listen, I was like my mom. I knew I was crazy like my mom was crazy. And the thing was, my grandmother, was her mom was just like her. And she was a crazy woman. I found out later in life, my grandmother was an alcoholic. Unfortunately, she died an alcoholic. But my mom, I've already told you, she was a drunk. And so, uh, but I knew these two women as just absolutely insane ladies, crazy behavior. And here I am behaving crazy. So I think I'm crazy. So I'm going to therapy, talking to people about why I think I'm crazy. And I remember this one therapist said I was like a butterfly trapped in a jar because I had gotten married at 16 or at 17 and I had never really lived a life, didn't go to college. So here I am trapped, this butterfly trapped in a jar. I just need to spread my wings. I was like, thank you. Here's your money. Paid her for advice and went and spread my wings. So all of this is to say I used that marriage for a long time to drink the way I wanted to. So here I am, 27 years old. Uh, My son is two and a half, three years old. And and now I um, have very few friends, um, controlling abusive husband, and I feel trapped and lonely and isolated. My family lives in Nashville, and my world was getting really, really small. And I hated who I'd become. I hated the mom that I had become. But I wasn't spending a lot of time at home with my baby. Because I'm out partying as much and as often as I can, partying, you know, going to the bar and getting drunk and ending up with people that I didn't really want to be with. So I'm absolutely mortified with myself going to this, these therapists. And one day I, and I ring up a new therapist to say, you know, start therapy again. And I, and I said, I want to go to marriage counseling because really my husband's a problem. So I go to marriage counseling, but I go by myself <laughs> because I don't want him to know there's a, that I think there's a problem. So I go to marriage counseling and by myself, and I something I must have said. I can't recall the words I said in these. I had three visits, three appointments that I attended with this person. And at the third visit, she asked me if I was willing to check myself into treatment. I'm like, what? I don't have a problem with drinking. You don't, you're not listening. My husband's a problem. If you, you know, I'm just like trying to, you know, I'm that butterfly and I'm trapped in a jar. I got to spread my wings. Well, I'm just trying to live life and enjoy life. How fun. But honestly, inside, I'm like, uh, 
uh, miserable with the woman that I've become. And I was thinking, you know, deep down inside that, you know, that husband deserved for me to leave him. That kid deserved for me to leave him. You know, they'd be much better off without me, that I'm a horrible person and I should leave. And the truth was that they were just getting in the way of drinking. Because drinking now had become so much more important than them. And so I'm rationalizing in my head, like, they really would be better off without me. The therapist says, would you be willing to check yourself into treatment? And I'm thinking, I need to get away. Yes, I'll go. She gives me some names of some suggestions of places to go to. And a couple of them I remembered as the names of the places my mom had gone to when I was a kid the psych units. Um, maybe they had an alcohol and drug dependency programs in the psych units, but I remember them as psych units and they were really scary. So I said, hell no, I won't go. But by then my mom had gotten sober and she had gone to this treatment facility in Nashville. I remember going there when I was on the family week a lot of these treatment centers have these family week programs or family nights or whatever where they, the family comes in and you have this interaction with the addict or alcoholic and you do the whatever understanding or learning about alcoholism and how this their recovery is supposed to go. So I remember going and doing that with my mom at this place in Nashville. So I say to this therapist woman, I said, yeah, I'll, I'll go, but I'll only go if I can go to Nashville where my mom went. And honestly, in my mind, I was thinking, I'm going to get out of town because, right, my my kid doesn't deserve me as a mom. My husband doesn't deserve me as a wife, so I need to get away. So I am like, okay, I'm out of here. I'll go to Nashville. And I'm thinking, oh, I'll go and live with my parents, you know. And, oh, you know, be taken care of and I can just recreate myself or find myself and start life over. So I go to Nashville, check myself in to this treatment facility. And I was really thinking, is it going to be some, you know, nice, fancy? This is what I remember. It was a really beautiful place. And I remember, I thought, like, you know, tennis courts and swimming pools. But when I got there, it was nothing like that. I thought there would be, you know, like yoga and massages and some relaxation time. And I get there and it's not that. It was a... It is a beautiful place. It still exists, and it's really beautiful on the outside, but it is a recovery treatment facility. So I get checked in, and they put me in detox for a couple of days, which I love because they give you, they gave me some you know, Valium to um, calm me down. I loved being sedated. And then they kicked me out of that detox and made me go into the ward, and here I have now I'm in this program, and I really don't want to be there. I'm just playing along with their game, going to the classes. And every week they kept telling me, you're going to have to really get honest and start getting involved and participating in the, in the recovery. Um, are you going to have to leave? This won't work for you. And I thought, no, 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 no. I, I Don't leave. Don't kick me out. I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. But I wasn't doing anything that they suggested. I was doing the opposite of everything they suggested I do. Anything, they, any rules they had, don't talk to the men. Forget that. I was always over wherever the men were talking to them. And, and just joking it off like it was just nothing. 
everything was a laugh or, you know, I wasn't serious. And then on the third week I was there, they asked me to go pack my bags and they said, it's really, we're serious now. You need to go. And I got desperate. That desperation came back and I said, no, please, you know, I will. I promise I will. And they gave me some really hard rules to follow, which I tried to my very best follow. But the real turning point came, there's two main events that happened there at that treatment facility. One was they brought in panels, H&I panels, which is hospitals and institution where they bring members, uh, AA members come into hospitals or institutions and share their experience, strength, and hope. And I remember a woman that came in on one of those panels shared some stuff out loud that I completely identified with. And I was shocked that she was sharing it out loud. But it also gave me hope that there was somebody else out there like me, that I wasn't alone. And that slim, slim, slim hope there was possible solution. And the next thing that happened that was a huge um, turning point for me was I was in a classroom setting one day and we were talking about willingness and the teacher said, you know, would you be willing to do whatever we suggest if it was going to keep you sober? And the whole conversation was about willingness that day. And I disagreed and argued and said, why would I do any of this? I don't understand. This doesn't make sense. And he said, listen, I'm just asking if I told you to go stand outside in the pond because that would keep you sober, would you be willing I looked outside and it was late October in Tennessee. It was starting to snow actually that day. And I look out in the pond. And I thought that it would be really cold and standing in the pond in the snow. I don't understand how is that going to keep me sober. This doesn't make sense. This is ridiculous. I'm just arguing with them. And he said, no, I just want to want to ask, would you be willing if we said that would keep you sober? And somewhere deep down inside, I got the willingness and I said, yes, yeah, I'll do it. I'll, I'm willing, whatever it takes, I'll do it. Yeah. I came back to California and cause they suggested it at the treatment facility. They said, go home and try and be a sober mom and a sober wife, go to Alcoholics Anonymous and do what, what is suggested. So I did. I followed their direction. I don't, and I don't, I still don't know why that I just, the switch turned over that I was willing. And I kept that willingness. And even through all the hard times in early sobriety, trying to find a group that I would fit with that was difficult and find a sponsor. I got a sponsor right away because they suggested that. I found a home group. My sponsor told me to get a commitment. She was really big on commitments. I was a birthday girl at the first home group that I got on Friday nights. She took me to a lot of H&I panels. She would tell me these are previews of coming events. <laughs> so we would go to these panels and um, and I'd meet with her every Wednesday and we'd go over the big book. We'd read the big book together. Friday nights, I would go and meet with the ladies before the meeting and have coffee. And I thought, wow, this is what my life has turned out to be. I'm meeting with these 50-something-year-old ladies, and here I am in my 50s. <laughs> it's funny now. I found that 
Alcoholics Anonymous has given me a way of living that really works. And, you know, I had an amazing relationship with my mom until she died 21 years sober. We had all those years. We got to share the program of Alcoholics Anonymous together. She stayed in Nashville. I stayed in California where I am now. I just, I've done the work. So the steps are amazing, uh, are important part of my recovery. I've worked all 12 steps. I sponsored women. And I work the steps with them. So that is the um, recovery part of my program. The unity part of my program is going and being a part of a group and fellowshipping, having a home group where I show up regularly and I'm accountable to people in the rooms. They see me. They can count on me. I take commitments and the service of service wherever possible. Service can be as big as having a commitment like a secretary or running convention or being a treasurer or as little as cleaning up after the meeting. And that's what the service that I love. I thoroughly enjoy is cleaning up the rooms after the meeting. It's those small insignificant little ways that I think are so meaningful to me. And in addition to the huge significant ways, of working with other women and helping them through the steps. And the program, as it's outlined in our books, is to help us to establish a relationship with a higher power and to um, achieve sobriety. And I wanted to just touch on the steps. Scott. The first three are pertinent ideas. They call it that and how it works. These are three pertinent ideas. They're just ideas, you know, concepts that you need to get your head wrapped around. That you're alcoholic, that probably no human power could have really draw alcoholism, and that God could and would if he were sought. And then the fourth step is just taking an inventory, making a list of stock and trade, any business that doesn't take stock in, its, in itself can f- will fail. So we take an inventory to see where, where, what, stock is good and what stock is bad, what we need to discard of and get rid of. And we we do, we admit these the faults that we find in our four-step, we admit them to somebody else and to God and to ourselves. And I think that's a key, 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 you know, admitting to God is one thing and to ourselves is we probably already know our, our own faults. So it's not hard to admit them to ourselves most times. But to another human being sometimes is the key part when we say it out loud to another human being. It really makes them real where we can't hide. So we immediately work on asking God to remove those things that we found out about ourselves that we don't like, our shortcomings, our defects. And we ask God to remove them. And we learn that God's going to remove them in his time, not ours. So we just work on them. My sponsor has me write um, my character defects on one side of the page. And directly on the other side in the second column next to it is the opposite. So, for instance, if being late to work is a shortcoming that I want to change, I start practicing being early or not having friends, that was a big one for a while. I remember, like, how do I become a friend? I've never, you know, I've always been out there doing things for myself. How can I start turning that around, being a friend? And she said, well, write down what things you think a good friend does. So I, I did that little 
things like, oh, remember them on their birthday or call them and ask them how they are or invite them over for a meal, cook them a meal. Those are the kind of things like things that tactical things. I love that about the um, seven step that she had me do. It's like on one side, what is it, the shortcoming I dislike about myself that I want to change and right next to it, what can I do to change? Eight and nine, making a list of all the people that harmed that list usually comes out of the four step. It's often very easy to find those people that you need to make amends to. If not, God, you know, become willing and God will help you remember those people and, and give you the opportunities to make those direct amends and just become willing, being willing to go out there and make those amends to people. And we do this for ourselves. So we can walk down the street with our head held high. If we see somebody coming that we have hurt or injured, we no longer have to look down at our feet or cross the street so we don't have to see them. We can hold our head high with self-respect. And 10, 11, and 12 is where I live. Continue to take personal inventory. And when I'm wrong, promptly admit it. My prayer meditation is, is something that I expound on almost every moment of the day. But I set aside a specific time every day that I can work on that prayer and meditation. And um, 12, uh, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, I carry this message to other alcoholics. And I just practice, practice, practice. I try and practice these in all of my affairs. And practice is not perfect. You know, that's why it's called practice. We, like a basketball player has to practice shooting hoops i just keep throwing the ball our baseball player has to practice hitting the bat hitting the ball the bat i'm not a sports person i shouldn't try and use sports metaphors but you know like if i just keep getting up to the plate and swinging that's my practice i just keep practicing those principles and i have an amazing life yeah my wildest dreams it's not perfect there's a lot of things going on that are not ideal things that i'd love to change but i just wait on god just tell god you're bigger than my problems and i know you'll handle it yeah so that's it uh life is great i have amazing life i could talk at length about how amazing my life is now from the woman that i was at 27 when i got sober to the woman i am now at 57 Yeah, 30 years later, a career I've built from not going to college, getting married at 16, having very little education and creating a career where I can afford to own my own home, travel the world. I just got back from the UK. I spent three weeks in the UK last April. And I'll be going up to Oregon for a month next month. I love to travel. Those are my um, great events that come to pass is um, travel and also my two children, which I didn't mention. I have a second son that I had when I was four, four, four years sober. Um, and their dad and I divorced when he was two. So I was the you know, single mom co-parenting. For many, many, many years, navigated through that, raised two amazing boys who were both in the military. Okay, that's it. 
I was wondering about the children thing because you said our first son. So I was waiting for subsequent yes. offspring to be mentioned. So I'm glad that you wrapped that up. I forget all that all the time. <laughs> I, t- I mean, I, I tend to forget because it happened after I got sober. And so sometimes I spend too much time talking about what happened before I got sober. So much happened that last 30 years, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You just celebrated 30 years, I guess, last year. So that's a, that's a, you're like a very young old timer. Thank you. (laughs) I think that there's a lot of value in talking about what it was like because we want to reach the newcomer, right? And so if we're just Mm -hmm. talking about how it is today, we're not relatable to the newcomer at all. I remember wanting to just hear, are you as were you as confused as I am right now when you came to these rooms? Is there any hope for me to have what you have? So I appreciate you walking mm-hmm. through. And you did a really good job of staying high level and not going into the dirty detail. I, I should redo my recording and stay high level because I went into dirty detail. But you still did a fantastic job of explaining how chaotic it was. Your experience was chaotic and it was painful And I appreciate that. One thing that stands out is you said, I hated who I became. You were just, you were miserable with the woman that you had become. And Mm -hmm. you explained why. Talk to me about how you are as a woman today. In retrospect, what is it about you today and about the woman that you are that you respect? Okay. I make it. A little bit more detail with my answer. All right. So most women drink the way I drink, end up doing things that they regret. And for women, I think we just carry so much shame and guilt and remorse for being that slutty woman, you know. And for me, like alcohol gave me oh was like a um, an allergy for clothing. The clothes always came off for some reason. I, you know, I couldn't control it. No, that's a joke. But the tequila makes my clothes fall off. You know, so you know, and so um, just the shame and guilt and demoralization that comes with that, putting myself in positions and places that I really regretted. And then going back and home to a child and a husband and feeling horrible. And then saying, I'm not going to do that again. And then going back out and doing it again. And saying, well, how can I love my child if I say I'm going to stay home and be with my child? And I don't do that. Because my drinking took me outside the house. I, my mom was a drunk in the house. So I didn't want to be like my mom. I was had to, I was different, right? So I was out in the bars, and I told you already how much I love the bar scene. So that's where I was drawn to constantly. And then thinking, if I loved my son, I would spend more time with him. I wouldn't leave. Oh, and some of the things I didn't go into is the dropping my son off at daycare at eight a.m. when it or at six a.m. when it opened. I relate to some people that tell the story about waiting for the for 6 a.m. for the the liquor store to open. I was the one waiting at 6 a.m. for the daycare to open so I could drop them off so I could go drink the way I needed to. 
Now, what kind of mom does that? And then not knowing I'm not coming back to pick him up. I'm supposed to. supposed to be my day to drop off and pick up because I'm not working. But because I'm not working, I'm going to drink. So I got to drop him off and I know I'm not coming back. Now I've got to come up with the crazy, the most insane excuses, which I always did. The stupidest, my car had a flat tire, I ran out of gas, my friends in need, I have to go be with them, or, you know, the most insane things. I got lost. So that was the demoralization of a mom. Mom, um, there's another story that I've shared often in open settings about a woman I met at my job who we were friends maybe a week, and she had a couple of kids. One was the same age, I think, around the same age as my son, Stephen. And so immediately befriended her. I'm thinking, oh, playdates, oh, this is gonna be great. She's a mom, we're in the same business, co-workers, we're gonna be great friends. And I befriended her, and the first week I asked her to watch my son when their dad was, his dad was out of town or something working. I can't remember where he was, but I said, can you watch my son tonight? Babysit for me. She says, sure. She barely knows me one week, and I drop my kid off, and I don't come back. And I call her in the middle of the night, and like, oh, I've had too much to drink, and he's probably asleep. Can he stay there? She's like, yeah, yeah. She's called, and then the next day she calls me like eleven o'clock. Please, where are you? Come get your kid, you know. And I don't even make it till like two, something like that. Sauntering, hungover. I'm probably wearing the same clothes I left in. And this is the kind of mom that I became. So this kid was probably better off, you know. And that's where that rationalization came. He's better off without me. And what about today? So, got sober when he was three, and our dad and I was together until he was eight, nine, nine, nine years old, ten years old. His son, my second son, his brother Kevin was two. Divorced their dad, stayed here in California. I wanted to move to George um, to Tennessee. Sorry, to Tennessee where my parents lived because I thought it'd be better to be homesick you know just wishing I could be with family I have a large family but I stayed because I didn't want to leave so now I'm sober I'm not going to leave them I'm going to be in their life and I'm not going to take them away from their dad and their dad referring back to how controlling and abusive he was I didn't have the power I didn't know I had the power to fight him in court to have custody, to leave, to take them with me. I had, I, I believed I didn't have the authority to do that. So I didn't, and I had no money. I, I divorced him. I left with nothing. I didn't take any child support or alimony or anything. We'd been married 20 years. And I said, I don't want it. Just please divorce me. Please let me go. So that was the only way in my mind at the time that felt like the only way I could get out of the marriage was to leave, let him have everything, just sign the papers. So, and I'm not going to walk out on my kids. So I stayed here in California and that was my amends to my kids was staying and being in their life as much as possible until they were grown. Looking back and I have, 
I've been doing a lot of work on, um, because the kids are grown now and they're off doing their own thing and they're not in contact with me. And I have to remember that I'm a good mom. I have evidence, I have proof based on my memories and they have the same memories. So whatever they're walking through that's causing the separation that we have at the moment, I know that I was there for them. I gave them everything that I could give them. Growing up, being there, being a part of their life, showing up for them as much as I I could, much as their dad would allow. Yeah. And um, up until, like, whew, the eldest son being a part of his wedding, giving, he, he got married, being there when he got married, giving him his rehearsal party, helping him with his house buying appliances and not just gifts, not just giving money and gifts, but like showing up and being a part of his life. They're both of their lives. Some of the youngest, I remember when he graduated from basic training or he went to tech school, the youngest uh, flew there for his graduation ceremony and then drove with him back or met him back in Tennessee where he was stationed. And then when he was, gosh, I'm sorry. I'm going off on a tangent with all these little memories that are bursting in my brain. You're perfectly good. The youngest, when he was 18, he left home. He went and lived with his brother for a little while. And then he went to work at a ranch in Laramie, Wyoming, that his brother worked at also when he was right out of high school, first year. I got to drive with him from New Mexico to Laramie. We went on a road trip together, just me and him, you know. And this dude ranch that they both worked at, I took them to when they were children as guests. So it was like a dream for me. I wanted to take them, to teach them, to introduce them to horses. I loved horses growing up, and I wanted them to be introduced to it. And so when they were little, I took them to this dude ranch, and then I got to take them two more times as guests. And then they both went and worked there Mm -hmm. in the summer. Great experiences like that. Great experiences. So um, does that answer your question, the mom that I am now? Yeah. Yeah. I have two more questions for you. Sure. So you learned that alcohol was a solution pretty young. And when your mom was in the hospital, I think it was in high school, you kind of went to school on a mission to feel different, to, to stop feeling rather. Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine in sobriety stuff happens and you want to feel different. You want it to mm-hmm. stop. What are some of the things or what have you done? If you can recall any of those moments in sobriety to feel different. No. Okay. Sure. I love that um, question because the the answer I think is something I speak about often is that sobriety is uncomfortable. So I drink to feel comfort. I'm sober. I don't have that comfort anymore. So I immediately go to find comfort elsewhere. And it can be in so many things. Like I remember when my dad died and I spent like $3,000 at one store on clothes, $3,000, because I needed to feel better. So that was like the shopping. 
explosion just to feel better. And then there's been the food. Food can be my like, quick go-to because it's usually I need some comfort food. The other day I had, I wasn't feeling well, really tired too. I, had, I was just exhausted. And I decided to have like a pint of ice cream for dinner. That happens all the time because these are the things we use to feel better because we we get uncomfortable in sobriety. Like I still use that pint of ice cream every now and then, but it's not a, an addiction. So everything that I try and ingest is really just to satisfy this God absence that I have. So if I fill myself up more with God, I'll have no, less need for these other things to fill myself up with, to feel comfortable. I think that constant prayer and meditation, which I set aside time every day to have, is helps me with maintaining more God so I can have less of me. And the me part is the one that wants that immediate gratification. But it's not perfect. Absolutely not. Like I just mentioned oh, twice now, the ice cream. There's so many other things. Thankfully, you know, that the pain of the that credit card debt from all that spending, the pain of working through, which took years to try and figure out how to not live in debt the way I was doing. Years, years. But the pain of all of that caused me to get into action to find a solution to not live in credit card debt. I try and be kind and gentle with myself when I see that I'm acting out in some behavior that is just to feel that comfort. I, you know, try and say, okay, be kind to me. Say, I'm just a human being. I can give myself a break and try and do better next time. Self-forgiveness. Yeah. Yeah. When we talk about loving ourselves a lot, I think I hear it a lot. People talk about love yourself, be kind yourself. And, and I'm like, okay, but I need tactical. I'm always about the tactical. Break it down. What does it mean to love myself? How do I, do I just sit around going, I love you, hug myself? And so I had to learn, like, there's loving actions I can do for myself. Loving myself is maybe... Just giving myself the permission to sit and do nothing and watch television or loving myself might be taking some of the money that I am saving for the blah, 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 like new tires. I'm going to go and spend $40 of it on a massage instead of I'll get there eventually to buy the new tires. But today I want to be kind to myself and treat myself. I can relate to the, give me the directions on tell me how to do it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So for the final question, what do you want to say to the alcoholic that's listening now still out there suffering? Mm -hmm. If you're out there suffering, no, you're not alone. There is a solution. We offer a solution that works. I know Alcoholics Anonymous isn't, the only way to get sober, but it's a really great tool that works for a lot of people. So if you're suffering, give us a, give it a try. You know, my mom, she was an amazing member of Alcoholics Anonymous when I was newly sober. She said, just go to a meeting, try a meeting six times. If you don't like it, you can try another one or, you know, give it up, but give it a try. 
For more information, read the first 164 pages of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.